uh, we are firmly entrenched in the fall and everybody is involved in the flurry of life that starts with uh, autumn and the beginning of school. But I have been thinking this week about an article that I read in the newspaper uh, in August about vacations. Did you take a vacation this summer? Some of you did. Uh, I wonder if your experience matched what researchers discovered recently about vacations and happiness. They were trying to find out the effect that vacations have on people's satisfaction with life and their happiness in it. When is a vacation the most satisfying experience? Before it, during it, or after it? When does your vacation make you the happiest? You probably know this by experience, but maybe you'd still be surprised to hear it officially said that the most joy that you receive from your vacation actually takes place about eight weeks before you go on vacation. Uh, when you're planning it. Planning a vacation is actually a more satisfying experience than actually going on vacation. It uh, actually gives you more joy planning and thinking about it than it does actually on the vacation or after the vacation. So I have a strategy for you for next summer. It's going to save you a lot of money. Spend all winter long planning a great vacation and then don't go. You'll be satisfied and you'll be a little bit wealthier at the end of the summer. I thought about that, that survey because um, I think that this vacation study mirrors the experiences that many people who are followers of Christ have as they walk following Jesus. When you first encounter the Gospel, uh, it's great news. The Bible promises good things to those who turn to Christ. Maybe you're, you're becoming a follower of Christ. God brought you out of uh, an alcohol or drug addiction. Or maybe God uh, healed your broken marriage when you turned to Christ. Or uh, He set you free from some horrible set of circumstances. But after that happens, you, you settle in and you start to, to wonder. You, you begin to wonder. Uh, in 1997, Philip Yancey wrote one of his uh, first best-selling books, and it was called Disappointment with God. It's a striking title, Disappointment with God. And, and I think it, it connected to many people who are followers of Christ. Probably an experience you struggle to describe in prayer meeting or your small group. Are you afraid of what people would say if you went out to the foyer after the service and you said to someone, you know, this Christianity thing, it just doesn't seem to deliver. Um, it's not really meeting my expectations. My spiritual life seems really flat and I don't seem to have what other believers have. I see them and they, they, they seem to be so much more satisfied than I am. Does it feel like you come to church on Sunday sometimes so that you can gin up enthusiasm for a faith that, that you hope will carry you through Monday through Friday? We're going to get together and we're talking about how wonderful Jesus is and it kind of has the feeling of a bunch of people getting together to talk about, I don't know, napkins and make napkins really exciting and then our enthusiasm for napkins will carry us through the rest of the week. We'll wipe our mouths well all week and then come back the next Sunday to sing again about napkins. Except... It's not napkins, it's Jesus now. We just sing about and we're trying to convince ourselves that He really is that wonderful. 
If you read through the New Testament, you'll find that one of the central themes of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to these men and women that he loved so dearly is that Christianity is always a quest for more. We're on a quest for more as followers of Christ. Now you say to me, more of what? And I say to you, I'm so glad you asked. Let's let Paul answer the question. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians 1 is where I want to direct your attention uh, this morning. We are working our way through this book, and while you take out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 1, maybe you want to take that blue sheet back out, and on the other side of I Ask the Lord are some uh, place for you to take some notes if you're interested in doing that this morning. Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Uh, and uh, we're going to read through this. Ed prayed through it a little bit this morning, and uh, we're going to read through it again today. Hear what Holy Scripture says, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Uh, The more that we are after as followers of Christ is more of Him. More knowledge of, more understanding of, deeper reverence for God Himself. It's what Paul prayed for here in verse 15. It's what he wanted for them. Maybe to you, knowing more of Him... Perhaps it sounds like it's an experience, some sort of spiritual experience for super spiritual people, but not for you. Or maybe when I say that, that Christianity is about a quest for more of God, you think to yourself, that, that just does not sound very practical. Why does that make a difference in how I vacuum my floor or how I work or how I shop for groceries? Knowing more of Him. What I want to do this morning is I want to convince you from the text why knowing Him more is worth valuing and worth pursuing. Maybe I can reorient you this morning as to how you think about your faith and any growing disappointment with God that you find there. I want to proceed and I want to answer a very basic question that's written at the top of your sheet. Why are Christians on a quest for more? Why are we on a quest for more? Uh, specifically, though, uh, well, before answering rather that specifically, I want to uh, direct you again just to the, the format of the text. Verses 15 through 23, Paul prays for the Ephesians. He prays a lot in his letters. He writes down his prayers for them. And in verses 15 and 16, he affirms them. He affirms their belief of these believers. And then in verses 17 through 23, he intercedes for them. 
So affirmation, intercession. This morning we're going to look at uh, the affirmation and the intercession up through the middle of verse 19. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to continue and finish this prayer that Paul prays. But let us proceed this morning, though. Why are Christians on a quest for more? Uh, three reasons. Number one, we're on a quest for more because God has already been at work in our lives. God has already been at work in our lives. This is the affirmation that Paul gives to them in verses 15 and 16. I know we read it just a minute ago, but it's worth reading again. Let me, let me look, direct your attention to 15 and 16. For this reason... Well, what reason is that? We'll talk about that. I'm glad you asked. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks to you for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul's praying for them to know more of God is motivated by what God has already done in their lives. And he points this out in a couple of different ways. He, he speaks in verse 15 of for this reason... He goes back, God in verses 3 through 14, as Paul described it, has been at work in the Ephesians' lives before the creation of the world. He has loved them. He has predestined them. He has called them. He has redeemed them. He has sealed them. And on and on the list goes from these verses. God has already been at work in your life. For this reason, because of that, I'm praying for you, he says, Ephesians based on God's sovereign work and His, His, evidence, uh, His evident love for you, His evident thoughts of you, I'm praying that there will be more to come in the future. Then he, he points out in, verses, in verse 15 two qualities that he sees in them too that are evidence of God's already working in the past. Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. Now, Paul's heard about them. It's been five or six years since Paul's been in Ephesus, and somebody has come to Ephesus in, in prison, maybe Tychicus, and has told him that the Ephesians are doing really well. Man, that church, Paul, they're growing. More people are coming to faith in Christ, and, and they as a group in Ephesus are known for their love for one another. There's no other group in Ephesus that is like them for love for one another. Faith in the Lord Jesus, love for all the saints. This faith would separate them from their, their Ephesian neighbors. It would, it would cause them to be divided from them. Their love for all the saints would make them be united with other people. Their, their faith separated them from the life they knew. Their love unites them to other believers that, that they know. Uh, perhaps uh, they, had, they had turned their backs on the gods of the Ephesians and all the things that the other Ephesians were worshiping and honoring, and they had turned toward God. They turned toward Jesus Christ. In fact, you could use, the Bible does, the language of turning to describe what has happened to the Ephesians. Romans 3.12 said that all of us have turned away from God. We have, like sheep, wandered off our own path, onto our own path. Uh, The Bible says that we are naturally born alienated from God. We have turned away from Him. (laughs) Have you ever been at the grocery store and you're there just to pick up a couple things? You need eggs for dinner or you need just to pick up some milk and you're in kind of a hurry because you've got to get home and got a lot to do and you see somebody in the grocery store that you know and you think to yourself, if I stop and talk to them, 
going to be here a long time, and I'm really in a hurry. So what do you do at this moment? You whip out your cell phone, walk by him with a cell phone, you can get away with one of these, you know. <laughs> got to get milk and bread. I'm going, I'm going, you know, you could do that. That's an option. I don't recommend that. Uh, the other option, you could just turn away from them, right? You know, the, oh, there they are. You're, you're, you're huddling away, trying to get to the cash register without being confronted. By, you're looking at me like you've never done that before, but I know you have. That's very low-level turning, isn't it? It's very low-level turning away from somebody. It's, that's not really that big a deal here. But what Paul is, describes in his letters is a very high level of turning, turning away from God. God, our Creator, who made us, who knows how life in this world is supposed to be lived, and we have turned from Him and said, you know, I, I'd rather have my own way. Oh, the Bible promises terrible consequences for people who turn away from God. God, in, in effect, says, if, if that's what you want, if you want your own way, you're going to make your own way, and you're going to starve in your own way. You're going to die in your own way. Interesting, the word turning shows up not just in Romans 3, it shows up in, in the Old Testament too. Uh, uh, turning, uh, God calls and He invites those who have turned away from Him to turn to Him. Return to me is a, is a word in the Bible the Hebrew text uses a lot. Turn to me, turn to me. And, and the Bible does more, God does more than just issue this command. The Bible says that He comes to us and He places His hand on, your shoulder, on our shoulders and He invites us to turn to Him in the person of His Son. One of the consequences of, of turning away from Him is that we become alienated from God and we have this inner disposition that says, I do not want what God has. And, and, and we stand guilty and condemned before God. And Jesus, God's Son, came and, and He paid the penalty. He washed away the guilt that we owed because of our turning, that we had because of our turning from Him. Christ dying as our substitute on the cross. And that faith in the Lord Jesus that they have experienced, they have heard God calling, they have seen God, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and they have turned and they have said, I, I want what God has in Christ. Faith in the Lord Jesus. You know the worst type of turning? There's a lot of, lot of different ways to turn from God. Um, you, you can turn and... and at, we often, you know, we're, we're Baptist people, so you, the turning that you do, you get into like dancing and drinking. You know, there's that turning turning from God. But do you know, actually, the religious sort of turning is the worst sort of turning that the Bible has? The people who say, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to fix my own life. I'm going to be a righteous person. I was reading from Romans 10 the other day about um, God's experience, Christ's experience with the Jews in His day. Paul says of those, of those Jews in Romans 10, they did not want the righteousness that Christ offered. They wanted to make their own righteousness. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to fix my life myself. That's the worst type of turning. It's the ugliest type of turning. The religious turning. You, you can tell your turn from God that way if, if you tend to look down at other people who aren't as good and as righteous as you are. The Ephesians, though, they have turned to Christ. They have found faith in the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, this is, the, this is a sign of God's work in your life. That faith that has separated them from the Ephesians. He also, though, talks about God's work in their life in the love for all of the saints. 
Um, notice here uh, uh, this word all that's in the text. Your love for all the saints. Here is the first sign and the most important sign of the genuineness of their faith. It is their love for one another. And Paul uses again the word all, which is really short in letters, but really long on consequences. Your love for all the saints, not just the people at church who are your age or who share your interests or who are part of your race or who are cool, but but everyone, people I'm not naturally inclined to like. This is one way in which you can tell that your relationship with Christ is real. Your relationship with Christ is real by how you respond to people that you find unlovable. Not necessarily unlovable people out there, uh, that's, that's part of it, but unlovable people in here. This is the miracle of a church, that we can be so different, but because of Christ, we love one another. Is there, is there anybody in the church that you, uh, you avoid? Anybody that you don't really want to talk to? They'd be the type of people that you'd pretend you're on your cell phone in the church foyer so you wouldn't have to talk to them? Um, maybe it's somebody who said something hurtful to you at some point in time. Uh, we, we can do that. Um, maybe it's someone that you just, you just don't like. They're kind of... Kind of a downer, always negative, or they're they're just got a bad attitude about things, and you think you go your way in the church, and I'll go my way in the church, and that'll be good. It's interesting in Romans chapter twelve when Paul is speaking about this issue in the church of love, and he uses he gives commands like maintaining unity and forgive one another and bear one another. One of the things that Paul says is he says, "Do not be overcome by evil." but overcome evil with good. So it's one of the ways that your love for all the saints will be evident is when you turn to the people that you don't necessarily find lovable and overwhelm them with the grace of God. This is evidence of God's work in your life. Love for all the saints. Now, before I uh, proceeding here, um, I, I want to take a minute just to step back and think, and a little bit of attention, I suppose, about how this passage, how these verses apply to people who are spiritual leaders. This is not the focus of the verse, but Paul's a spiritual leader here, and I think there's some examples here, uh, some uh, helpful principles here for those who are spiritual leaders. Some of you are elders in the church, some of you are Sunday school teachers or small group leaders. If you're a husband, if you're a parent... Um, or you want to be a husband or a parent someday, spiritual leadership is your responsibility. And, and notice here what Paul's saying. I think Paul is saying that one of the responsibilities as a spiritual leader is to affirm God's work in the lives of the people that you lead. Affirm God's work in the lives of the people that you lead. Paul did it here. He said, Ephesians, I know about your faith and your love. And if you're leading wise as a spiritual leader, you are looking at the people under your care and you are affirming God's work in them. You are observing it. You're pointing it out. You're noticing it. You see God's grace in them. Now, this does not mean that you think they're perfect. Paul affirms their love, and in Ephesians 4, he's going to come back, come back to them and tell them some ways that they need to fix or straighten out their love for one another. Not, not perfection, but evidences of, of grace. 
And, and Paul here, even in these verses, in verses 15 and 16, notice he is creating a grace-infused environment in Ephesus by speaking to them, by encouraging them of how he's seen God's grace at work in their lives. Uh, you might think, you might think that, that offering constructive criticism is a way to help people, that, that being uh, negative or begrudging or critical, if, if you are those things, you are creating a toxic environment for growth. So affirming God's grace is like pouring grease or rubbing grease in the gears of someone's life. It smooths things out and helps them go, things go better. Uh, this criticism, this negativeness, is like pouring molasses in the engine of someone's life. Oh, affirming God's grace is like blowing on the ember that you see there, blowing it into full flame. And this criticism is like pouring cold water on those, those coals, those embers. Uh, if you're a leader, I, I challenge you to take some time this week and sit down and make a list of the people that are under your care, uh, your kids, your wife, um, um, the, some people in your elder group, the people in your small group. Take some time and make a list, uh, write down their names and write down how you see God at work in their lives. Can you affirm God's grace in them? Write it down and then go tell them about it. After they recover from the shock, they will thank you. And they will grow. Now, uh, there's something else here about spiritual leadership in this passage that I think is important. And it's about the role of prayer. Prayer is a necessary tool for spiritual leadership. You cannot possibly influence someone's life positively unless you're faithfully praying for them. Uh, I just finished reading for, for the second time the best book on prayer I've read. It's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I, I highly recommend it. Someone who's reading it with me said, um, did you notice how much in this book he talks about his kids and parenting them? <laughs> I hadn't because I have kids. The person didn't have kids, so he, it stuck out in his, in, in his mind. I think one of the reasons that Paul Miller talks in his book a lot about his family is because prayer itself is family business, isn't it? Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father. It's family business. But Paul Miller also said something in his book that I, I find in, intriguing and helpful and challenging. He said, I do my best and most important parenting work in prayer. I do my best and most important work, parenting work in prayer. This is when I am the most effective parent that I can be. When I pray for my kids. Can, can you say that about your spiritual leadership? This is the best small group leadership I can do when I'm on my knees for my small group. I am never a better elder than when I am praying for my, uh, the, the people on my list that, that I pray for. Uh, that, that thought has the potential to transform how you think about spiritual leadership. Now, this is way too convicting, so let's move on here, shall we? All right, why do we pursue more? Because God has already been at work in our lives. He's already uh, called us and predestined us, and he's, he's given us faith and, and developed love in us. And, and because of what he's done, we want more. So let, let's talk about that here. Another reason why Christians are on a quest for more. The second reason is because God offers more of himself. God offers more of himself. Verse 17 says this, 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Um, th- there are, are two requests that, that Paul makes here. Notice uh, you can see the, the Trinitarianism in this verse. Do you see that? God the Father, the, Lord, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit. And, and there's two requests that Paul makes. One, I want God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you can know Him better. And two, I want your eyes, the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. That phrase, eyes of your heart, as best we can tell from ancient literature, Paul coined this phrase, the eyes of your heart. No one had written anything like that before Paul. And actually, you can see here um, uh, Paul's understanding of how we're transformed as followers of Christ. Your heart, this organ in your body, not the organ in your body, your spiritual heart, where you love and think and, and remember and value things, needs to be enlightened. And it's enlightened by your spiritual eyes. You with, you with your spiritual eyes need to see Jesus Christ. And seeing Him will transform your heart. Do you remember from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 last week? We are blinded to the glory of Christ. And God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has opened our eyes so that we can see Jesus Christ. And seeing Him, we believe. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, As we see the image of Christ, we are transformed into that same image day by day. Which is why, again, on Sundays when we gather together, we are committed to exalting Christ seeing Christ, valuing Christ with the eyes of our hearts that we might be transformed. What this text is telling us is that you can know God better. There is more of Him to know and to value and to adore. Even though He's already done all this work in your life, there is more of Him that you do not know. For years, uh, scientists have been listening to the sounds of humpback whales. You've, you've heard recordings, no doubt, of humpback whales, that clicking, moaning, odd sound that humpback whales make. Uh, we used to think that humpback whales were unique in their singing, but we, recently we discovered that blue whales sing too, those largest of, of mammals. The blue whales sing too. In fact, uh, they sing powerful songs. Blue whales can be heard for hundreds, if not thousands of miles. A blue whale without a telephone can deliver a message from New York City to London without difficulty and they, without paying roaming charges. Uh, they have been singing, blue whales have been singing for centuries, but human beings have just discovered their singing because they sing so much lower than human beings can hear. It's a sound below our normal range of hearing. In the Gospel, your eyes were open to the glory of Christ. He has always been glorious. He has always been magnificent. But now you have eyes to see Him where you didn't see Him before. And Paul is, is praying that, that you would see more and more and more of Him. Does that resonate with you? Does that, that pique your interest? Um, in one of his sermons that was collected in a book called Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about people who have kind of settled in their faith. He says it's the uh, peculiar problem of people in middle age. Um, 
You just are. You know, you trust in Christ as Savior for a Savior. You're involved in a church, and you're, you're, you're busy doing things, but you're just in this phase of life. You go about your work, you go about your church life, you go about your family life, and you just survive. There's nothing new on the horizon. There's no new challenges. You're not praying about God's will for anything significant because you're just kind of there. You have a house, you have a wife, you have a car, you have, you know, all the big decisions have been made and you're just rolling along. Uh, maybe your spiritual life is, is like that. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes, he uses this phrase, he says, I want you to know the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's a glorious phrase unsearchable riches of Christ. That's a phrase that should hit you with a ton of bricks and you should say, wow, unsearchable riches of Christ. But maybe it just hits you with the force of a Ziploc bag. Yeah. Unsearchable riches. Why why is that? Why does that happen to someone who's a follower of Christ? There's probably lots of reasons, but, uh, but maybe uh, Deuteronomy suggests one of them. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15, God is speaking to the, the Israelites about the poor, and He tells them how to treat the poor in the country and, and uh, how to give to them. And then He says something striking. He says, but poverty is not going to be a problem for you in Israel because I'm going to bless you with riches that you're not going to believe. I'm going to provide everything for you. In fact, if you read through the book of Deuteronomy, the things that God promises, He promises to provide them with safety and health and happiness and long life and prosperity. All these blessings God's going to give them. You take those blessings and and you can put them into spiritual terms in the New Testament. For all the material blessings God promises in Deuteronomy, He he promises spiritual blessings to His people in the New Testament. Uh, Unsearchable riches in Christ. All these grand promises. In Deuteronomy, though, they didn't experience those riches that God promised. They never really encountered that peace, that safety, that prosperity, that long life. Why? I think that the reason in Deuteronomy is is that the people decided that they wanted something else. They didn't want God and they didn't want what He had to offer or they thought that the best way to get what God was offering was to find it somewhere or from someone else. They chose the values, the idols of the the culture all around them. See, you as a follower of Christ are engaged in this constant battle not to settle for the promises and offers that the things and the people and the opportunities in this world have to offer. We live in the richest nation in the history of the world and there are around us millions of opportunities to find satisfaction in menial things. Uh, the Phillies are not going to win the World Series this year, but if they did, and if Penn State wins the national championship, which they won't, um, it will not transform your life. It will not change your life. It will not make you a kinder person. It will not make you a holier person. It will not make you a more patient person. But, but some of you heed the Phillies and Penn State as if it will. 
Your Facebook friends will never be able to provide you with the variety and the color and the wonder of life that the internet promises. But some of you spend hours either clicking or with one of these or with one of these in front of a screen hoping to get some happiness out of it. I gotta find something else to satisfy my soul. And if I click enough, I'm gonna find it here. I know it. Maybe one of the reasons that the unsearchable riches of Christ doesn't sound all that attractive to you is because you stopped fighting against menial, little, empty things. See, God promises Himself. He promises more of Himself. Don't settle for small, insignificant things. That actually happened in the church in Ephesus. If you follow the church's path in Ephesus... About 30 years later, after Paul wrote this letter, John wrote a letter to the Ephesians in the book of Revelation. And he says to them, you have lost your first love. That first passion, that first delight in Christ that you had when you became a follower of Christ, it's gone. You don't have it anymore. You've settled in. You're on the verge of disappointment with God. Now, and I think Paul, if they had heeded Ephesians chapter 1, they wouldn't have gotten to that point in Revelation. Because in Ephesians 1, Paul says, God has done so much for you, now get more. Be satisfied in His great work that He's done. Search for more, pray for more, pursue more. Value knowing God more uh, on the basis of all that He is and all that He's done. So, That's why we're on a quest for more, because God offers us more of Himself. There's there's a third reason why Christians are on a quest for more. It's because God's blessings transform us. God's blessings transform us. In verses 18 and 19, Paul mentions three specific blessings uh, knowing Him and knowing these blessings are transformative to our lives. And the first one he mentions here is the hope to which He has called you. It's in verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you. Uh, this is one of the images that the Bible uses to describe followers of Christ. They're the called ones. Paul was writing to a church in Ephesus that was soon going to suffer significantly uh, from the government. They were going to suffer official persecution. And it was going to be very difficult. Uh, Some of them would be killed. Some of them would, would suffer. And Paul here is preparing them you've been called by God. You've been called, to borrow his words to the church in Colossae, out of darkness into his light. And because of that calling, there is for you a hope and a future. And that hope, Paul is reminding them, when you know God, you'll know this hope, and this hope will lift you up to endure these sufferings you're going to encounter. What Paul is speaking here is he's speaking about how the future breaks into the present, how their then affects their now. You know this, you know how this works. Uh, maybe you haven't thought about it in these terms, but imagine that two men were hired for a job. Both of them were hired for a job, and on, on the appointed day, they show up for the first day, and they, the uh, um, owner of the company takes them into this huge warehouse. And in this huge warehouse, there are piles and piles of buttons, millions and billions of buttons. And he says to these two men, This is your job. You're going to be sorting these buttons. 
I'm going to give you a tray every day, and I want you to start, and I want you to sort buttons by color, shape, and size. That's your job. Ready, go. He tells one guy when he hires him, he says to the first man, now, um, for this job that I'm going to offer you, you're going to make $20,000 a year. All right. He tells the second guy, he says to you, I want you to know that at the end of a year, after you do this job, I'm going to pay you $20 million. The first guy, after a few weeks, what does he do? He says, this is insane. I hate this job. I can't stand it. It's so repetitive. It's awful. What does the other guy say? He whistles to work, doesn't he? He's thrilled. He can't wait for every opportunity to go to work and and sort those buttons because he's so excited. Both of them are in the exact same circumstances. They have the exact same job. One of them has hope and one of them does not. Uh, Tim Keller was speaking about this recently in a a way that was exceedingly helpful to me. Uh, And and he he mentioned a, a lecture that he had read. Uh, In 1947, there was an African-American scholar by the name of Howard Thurman who delivered a lecture at Harvard University, and he delivered this lecture. He was speaking to his audience about African-American spirituals, those songs that are so richly embedded in American history. And one of the criticisms that people have offered over the years of African-American spirituals is that they're too otherworldly. They're too focused on the future. They, they sing too much about robes and crowns and thrones and angels and heaven. And, and these African-American spirituals are too otherworldly and they make, the, the, the criticism is that, that these spirituals made the slaves docile and submissive. And Howard Thurman argued that the truth about the spirituals is that the faith contained in them actually deepened the capacity that these men and women had to endure suffering. And it magnified their ability to absorb suffering. See, their confidence in that judgment day, that there was a day coming when God would right all wrongs, lifted them out of their circumstances so that they could survive in the midst of that horrible abuse and oppression. Paul says that he wants you to know the hope of God's calling. Our hope as followers of Christ is that there is coming a day when judgment will happen, when we'll enter God's presence and we'll enter God's eternal happiness with Him. And everything that we do today has eternal significance and eternal meaning. Everything you do now counts forever. You can see here, I suppose, one of the ways in which Christianity is superior to secularism. The secularists who say that this world is all that there is and that death is the end and that the sun someday is going to burn out and all human existence will freeze to death and the planet will die, uh, they have no hope. That thought eviscerates hope. Can you imagine if you went to a slave in 1855 and said, stop singing about angels and Elijah and and, and heaven because heaven doesn't really exist. You're here and you're stuck in this plantation with a government opposed to you that will keep you here and your children and your grandchildren, as far as you can see, are going to have no better situation than you are. But you've got to stop singing those songs because they're just not true. They're myths. You would eviscerate the hope of those people and you would eviscerate their ability to survive. 
Even secularists who say that there is no ultimate meaning to earth, they live as if they were, because if, as if there were an ultimate meaning, because you can't survive if you don't have hope at all. The engine that drives us forward in following Christ in this broken, this suffering, this plagued world is our confidence that this is not all that there is. We're called to something outside and beyond our world. And knowing Him more opens our eyes to this hope. It keeps us going. Not on slave plantations. <laughs> Thank God. But, but through the midst of job losses and divorces and uh, uh, prodigal children and uh, uh, earthquakes and tornadoes, all those things are hope, the hope of His calling. Now, there's a second blessing here that knowing God produces. Knowing God opens your eyes not just to the hope of His calling, but the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. That's also in verse 18, isn't it? The end of it. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, there's some debate here about whether or not Paul is speaking about our inheritance. Someday we're going to come into our inheritance under God or God's inheritance. God is going to inherit the world. Um, I think it's the latter. The, this is speaking about God's inheritance. We are, the Bible says that God's people are God's heritage. His reward for creation and redemption. We're God's special possession. We're His valued people. We're the ones that He purchased for Himself. If you and I were gold trophies, God would take you and put you over His mantle and say, I bought them, I made them, they're mine. Uh, this, uh, we are God's inheritance. And the reason that we're God's treasured possession is because we've been united with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I could at this moment, if I was so inclined, speak to you about your value to Christ. If our goal in our church was to make you feel better about yourself and to give you better self-esteem, this would be a great place to see it, to, to do that. When I could say to you, do you see how much you matter to God? You're God's special possession. He loved you. He purchased you. This is how much He values you. You are His treasured possession. I could say that, and it would be uh, a true, but I think it would miss the point of this text of what Paul is saying. This is not material that Paul is offering to puff us up, to make us strut around. I'm God's, I'm God's, I'm God's. That's not the point of this passage. The point of the passage is to motivate you toward God's purposes. Let me explain. Uh, at our last small group meeting, we divided into groups to uh, pray for one another. And I was with a, a group of men, and I, I asked them to pray for me about a particular sin pattern that I have seen in my life. Um, I don't have just one sin pattern, but this one has been rearing its ugly head more recently. So um, I shared this with the men and asked them to pray for me. They're a good group. I was uh, praying with uh, Brian Ferguson and Jason Heron and Ed McLaughlin. They're honorable men, so I, I shared this request with them. I talked to them a little bit about the details, and, and uh, Ed McLaughlin started asking me questions about this, specific questions about the where and the when of my sin. And he had this look in his eyes, and I knew for a fact at that moment in time that he and Judy were going to be praying specifically for me about this sin in my life. 
Uh, he was making plans. I, I could tell, I could see in his eyes, he was making plans about how and when he was going to remember me before God. And at that moment, I had two thoughts. On the one hand, I felt incredibly loved. Um, Ed and Judy McLaughlin are going are to pray for me. They're going to pray for me uh, because they care about me. They're going to uh, take time from their day. They have other things to worry about. They're going to remember me. I'm not part of their family. I'm not in their generation. I didn't grow up in Lancaster next to any to either of them. But because of the grace of God, their lives have been transformed. They're going to pray for me. And you know, God listens to Ed and Judy McLaughlin. They're going to pray for me. I, I felt incredibly loved that someone, some people that I esteem so highly would pray for me. Do you want to know what else I thought, though, while I was sitting there and I thought, man, Ed's going to pray for me. The other thing I thought to myself was, if Ed and Judy are going to pray for me, I better not mess up. I better not screw up. I, I, I better not, this better not get worse. I don't want to disappoint them. If they're going to make the effort to pray for me, if they're going to remember me, I better get it together. I don't want to when Ed asks me, and he's the type of person who will, Ed asks me and says to me, hey, how's it going? Ed, uh, we've been praying for you. I don't want to look at Ed and say, I don't know what God you've been praying for, but I ain't been working. I want to say that to him. I want to look at Ed and I want to say, yes, God answered your prayers, Ed. Your concern for me was answered in my life. And, and when, he, when I knew they were praying for me, it motivated me to, to battle with this sin more than, than if he hadn't said that. Now take that and, uh, image and put it here in Ephesians 1. In Christ, God has made you His own possession, which should make you feel incredibly loved. God has set His affection upon you. Um, God has made you His. Now, live up to that calling. What is stunning about this passage is not that God loves you, but that God loves you. He's still at the center, and He has made you His inheritance. And now we're prepared to read from Ephesians 4 where Paul says, live a life worthy of this calling. This is supposed to motivate you. God's inheritance. It comes with privileges. It comes with great riches. There's benefits to being God. And I want all of those uh, being gods. I want all of those resources to be at work in my life to make me worthy of this calling. Actually, that third thing that he mentions here is those, is part of those riches. Look at verse 19. I want you to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. And the next three verses expand on the nature of this power, and, and that's what we're going to talk about next week, what this power is and what it does, Lord willing. You should know in the meantime that power is this key term in Ephesians. Notice when you read Ephesians, look for the word power and see what God, God's power does. It enables us to develop patience and humility and gentleness. It develops healthy and Christ-centered family relationships. It helps us overcome racism and ethnocentrism. It helps us resist the evil influence of, of evil spirits. And more and more and more. It gives us every resource we need. It's incomparable. It's great. And it lifts you from the malaise of disappointment. Can you see why Paul would pray that they would know God more? 
Because when you know more, it, know God more, and you know the hope, it, it lifts you out of the suffering that you are enduring. When you know the riches of His inheritance in it, it drives you forward. And when you know the power, the, the, His incomparably great power, it gives you the strength to do these things, to, to follow hard after Him. Wilbur Reese wrote these lines. You probably know them. I, I've read them before, but listen to what he said. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal and a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Paul's prayer is explosive to this type of thinking. God, save us from thinking that you're small and that your smallness fits well into our comfortable lives. Instead, God, make us like Paul wanted the Ephesians to be always searching for more of you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we're grateful for you, to you for the Apostle Paul's prayer life. I'm grateful to you that he was faithful in remembering those that were under his care and that he wrote them down for us. Father, you are well aware of our spiritual distractions and how we love empty things, how we can be wooed so effectively by insignificant things. Uh, I'm mindful this morning of, of uh, what Hebrews says about Moses, that he uh, denied himself the pleasure of sin that lasts for just a short time so that he might find riches in Christ, that riches that do not last, that lead to a city that has an everlasting foundation. Father, our prayer is that you would fulfill in us what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened so that we might know you more and know hope and know the riches of being your inheritance and your incomparably great power. Oh God, transform us, we pray, out of the, uh, in the midst of our mundane world. Make us uh, uh, God-knowers that surpass uh, our expectations. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.